when I think about uh, politics, I'm not super political, but when I think about politics, I think of the caricature that probably a lot of people think of, that if you're a politician, you're trying to build a political platform, you got to make the biggest promises. But you don't want to make your promises too big because no one will believe them. But you want it to be bigger than, you know, your opponent. That's sort of the caricature of politics that I think of. So a politician could come in, say, I want to get elected. I'm going to make a big promise. I'm going to promise a million dollars for every single citizen of the country. That'd be pretty sweet. But we would all be like, baloney, right? This guy, what's, we, he's not going to give a million dollars to everybody. No such thing. The promise is too good to be true. No one would believe these promises. So if I wanted to get elected, I'd have to make just a big enough promise to get elected. And then whether I do it or not, that still remains to be seen. But that's, that's sort of how politics works in a simple mind like mine. But we all know that promises only count when they're kept. Promises only count when they're kept. Words are important, but there's only value if they're in their keeping. And so the central message of Psalm 12, which is what we'll be going through this morning, is, is really about words. False words, true words, fake promises, and kept promises. And today, it's Good Friday. It's a time where we slow down and we consider the greatest promise ever made. And if you're a Christian, you believe that that promise is kept. There's value in its keeping. The promise that God, throughout all of history, for thousands and thousands of years, that he would send someone that would finally come and completely save people from their biggest need. That is what we're thinking about this morning. And so I've shared this already. The claims of Christianity are big and bold. I won't deny it. Right? If what I'm saying is true, if what this book says is true, that is a bold claim. That is a big promise. It's a big promise. And we hear big promises all the time. Right? We're always oversold. Right? We, we always hear these promises. But the claim of Christianity is that the difference is these promises are actually kept. These were fulfilled. This is what we remember on days like today. And that should change everything. If that's true, it should change everything. And so as we work through Psalm 12, I want you to keep that in mind, that the big idea of Psalm 12 is promises only count when they're kept. Promises only count when they're kept. And so I want to do that in our brief time together, considering Psalm 12, that we have two options we have two types of promises that we will hold on to in life. And so from Psalm 12, I want to look through two lenses, the lies that poison us and the truth that saves us. The lies that poison us and the truth that saves us. That's what we'll be working through. And so if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Psalm 12? If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles on that table over there. They are fair game. You can take one, use one for the day, keep it forever for you. Uh, if you don't, I will be reading it out loud, but again, if you have a Bible with you, and if you're not familiar with the Bible, you kind of just, Psalms at least, is pretty much in the middle. You just split it in half, maybe lean a little bit more to the left, and you'll hit Psalms, the biggest book in the Bible. But there's 150 of them, so we're only in uh, 
number 12. So big number 12, that's the chapter, and then verses we'll be going through the whole thing, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 12, verses 1 through 8. Uh, this is a psalm that has a title, like many psalms, and so your Bibles may say, mine says, the faithful have vanished. That is not an original title, that is what people have added in to kind of organize the psalm, so that's not part of the original text, but part of the original text is this. It says, to the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Now, this Sheminith word, we've run into it before through the psalms already. It's a bit of a mystery. No one really knows exactly what the word means. We can all take our best guess. It's likely, uh, as with a lot of the words in the uh, little intros to psalms, some musical or liturgical term. This was a song. It says, to the choir master. So this is something that people have been singing for thousands of years. Uh, and this Sheminith people, some people think, oh, it means that, you know, it was played on an eight-string harp or it was... You know, maybe that was like its time signature or its kind of meter or rhythm or, again, some kind of musical liturgical term. So just so you know, when we bump into words we don't know, that's, that's what that word is. And we don't really know. But that's what that one, the Sheminith, a psalm of David. So would you listen as I read Psalm 12, verses 1 through 8. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl as vileness is exalted among the children of man. It's a little bit gloomy, Psalm 12. kind of starts bad and ends bad but it's a lament it's a, a communal lament again a very popular category in scripture even if we don't always give it the time and attention it needs but we can tell right away from the very beginning the situation is bleak right when david writes this psalm he paints a picture of society at the time which is pretty bad it's verses one and two it says save O lord the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. So how does he start? He cries out to God for help. It's a wonderful short prayer for its brevity and its honesty. It says, save, O Lord. Some of your Bibles may have that translated just simply help. Don't know, help. Maybe you've prayed that prayer before. So what's he saying through these first few verses? He's saying, God, help me. It's like there's nobody godly left around. There's no faithful people left. Everybody's a liar. Everybody's flattering. Everybody's deceiving. We live in 2022. It's been a while since David wrote this psalm. But it feels like it could be written today. It doesn't feel that dissimilar from our world. Lying is just what we do. Lying is just what we do. 
We've already considered politics, but think about business. Think about our home lives. Think about whatever, entertainment, airbrushed magazine covers and Instagram posts. Lying is just what we do. It's just what we're all about. It's all around us. And it is hyperbolic, but it's not that wild of an exaggeration to echo what David says and say, everybody's lying. That's just the, that's the climate. That's the, the finger is on the pulse. Everyone's lying. That's, that's the situation. And whether it's the, maybe you think David's being dramatic, but I think you know this feeling, whether it's in the small things like advertising, being tricked, you know, you bought something on Amazon, when it shows up, it does not look like, you know, that sweet picture, you know what I'm talking about, right? Or whether it's a, a real heavy lie, a verbal assault against you, slander or whatever, some lie that gets spread about you. We all know the sting of being lied to or being lied against. Lies gut. They gut us. And we don't know, sometimes, again, as we work through the Psalms, sometimes in those little intros, it gives us the exact situation in David's life, saying, hey, here's what's going down. Here's the, the kind of context. Here's what we know the situation is. And then this is why David wrote this Psalm. This one, we don't have an exact situation in his life. We can guess from knowing through the rest of the Bible what his life looked like that, you know, maybe this was a time when he was fleeing from Saul, or maybe it was connected to an earlier psalm where he was fleeing from his own son who was trying to, you know, take him out. There's lots of circumstances in his life where he may be saying, everybody's lying, everybody's out to get me. But either way, he's had enough. He says, everybody's lying. There's flattering lips, there's double hearts. And as we think about that flattering lip, double heart language, to me, it, it just reeks of this idea of false promises. False promises. Lies that feel just close enough to the truth to do the most damage. It's almost better to be insulted to your face than to have somebody flatter you to your face and then, you know, dish you behind your back. I think that's why he's so frustrated in this moment. People are talking about this. People are using, having this double heart. They've got mixed motivations. They're speaking out of both sides of their mouth. So as we think about lies, we know that lies just poison from the very beginning of the Bible. As soon as we see sin enters the world, lies are the root of it. Right? Satan comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. You maybe know the story. What does he say? He doesn't say, oh, you know what you should do? You should go rebel against you know, your creator. No, he makes them question. He tells them a lie. He sounds close to the truth. Did God really say did he really say you couldn't eat from that tree? Did he really say you couldn't do that? And that's really the, the core of what it means to sin, right? We all fall for lies. Why do we go against what we know we ought to do? Why do we do exactly what we're told not to do? Because we fall for a lie. We fall for a lie. And lies break things. That's just the way it is. So David calls on God to act. He says, may the Lord cut off all the flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. For those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us. Who is master over us? What's he saying? He's, he's crying out to God for help, and he's calling on God to do something. He's saying, stop the lying. Right? Shut them up. And it ramps up when he describes these liars. 
because with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master of us? We don't really talk like that today, but I think we can understand the sentiment. We can dress it up as eloquent as we want. We can say things like, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. That sounds nice and poetic. Maybe the 21st century version sounds a little bit fluffier. Something like, if you do you, or live your truth, or just be happy. But these are all lies. I mean, it's good to be happy. That's not a lie. But if that is our sole aim, it's a lie, pure and simple. Because what happens if, you know, you doing you is different than me doing me? What happens if your truth is different than my truth? I'm not a mathematician, but, you know, positive, negative, cancel each other. What is the situation here that we end up with no truth if my truth is different than your truth? And so it's no wonder that the world kind of spirals because we don't have anything to anchor ourselves in. We have no effective truth. And it's pure disaster. And that's the scene that David paints when he says, everybody's a liar. Everybody, it's, it's dissolving. It's crumbling around us. I think that's a similar scene that we see if we look at the world around us or we look honestly at the state of our own hearts most of the time. And that's the central message of the Bible. The message of Jesus is the gospel. Gospel literally means just good news. What is the good news? The thing is, society around us is also trying to sell us a bill of goods. This supposed gospel as well, and we gobble it up. We love it. These lies that sound a lot like the truth poison every sphere of our life, and we let them. We acquire a taste for them. We are prey to a world that says anything can be true, and therefore nothing is true. We let our feelings guide us far too often. And it all boils down to that statement in verse 4, who is master over us? Who is master over us? If you just take an honest assessment, that's all I'm asking for, an honest assessment of your own life. Like what are we making the most important things? If work is solely to get personal fulfillment or success, well, what happens when it's neither fulfilling and you're not successful? If your marriage is simply a means to have personal satisfaction, what happens when your spouse doesn't love you like they should? If your children are the metric of your joy, your absolute joy, what happens when they fail you? What happens when they disappoint you? What happens when they rebel against you? Again, these are all good things. But it's where we get them in the wrong order at times that we get into trouble. We fall for a lie. So if we take an honest assessment of our lives, we find this to be true. And whether you claim to be the master of your own life or not, too often we actually live this way. And so look at how often we ground ourselves in something as fickle as our own feelings, apart from being grounded in something like God's word. We need to hear the advice of, uh, the advice of Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Again, I know that that feels abrasive. It's a little salt in the wound-ish. But how many marriages have been destroyed because one party doesn't feel the way that they felt before? How many people have been treated as less than human because someone feels that they should be? We don't have to look far or even far into the past 
to know that that's true on so many levels. Right, 74 years ago today, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American baseball player to play in the MLB. That's not that long ago. We don't have to look back 74 years to see the distortion that can happen when we feel something. When someone decides that they don't feel that this person is, is worth anything. And we are not immune from this, Christian. How many churches have been split because someone starts a sentence not with, well, I think we should be doing it this way because I, this is what God says or this is what the Bible. No, well, I just feel like this. Or I don't feel like this. And broadly speaking, no matter what category we're talking about here, this is the lie that is essentially what is wrong with all of us. Pride and self-sufficiency is really the root of all sin. Why do I sin? Because I care more about me than you. Why do I sin? Because I care more about what I want than what God says. And in Romans 1, Paul describes this exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That we worship created things rather than the creator. And so you might not have an idol or a shrine in your house that you bow down to every day. But the message of the Bible and the message of Psalm 12 is that we all fundamentally have a worship problem. We are all great at worshiping. We're just really bad at worshiping the right things. We don't make God the master of our lives, and so we let anything become the master of our lives. Can't remember who said it. Someone said it. If we fail to worship God, we don't worship nothing. We worship anything. So maybe there's things in your life that look more like an idol than you maybe give them credit for. Again, good things. Sports. Hobbies, relationships, work, possessions. These are good things, but we fall for the lie and then we make them God things. It's not a good place to be. Maybe you're still tracking with me. Yeah, Aaron, right on. That's, that's bad for this person next to me, or whatever, but I'm good. I'm, I got this under control. Well, what is the one thing that if it was taken away from you would absolutely make the world fall around you? What is the one thing that would have the walls just crumble down if you lost it? That is your God. But maybe it's broader than that. Maybe you're like, no, there's not one thing. You know, it's just me. Well, that's the problem. It is just you. Maybe it's just yourself. Maybe you are the root of all of it. You might live your life, you know, looking all great. I live this life with just this facade of humility. But in reality, take an honest look at my life it echoes verse 4 this bravado of he's master over me and so whether that's on a macro societal level or whether it's on a micro personal level these are the lies that poison us that is the root of our problems i get this is pretty doom and gloomy but there's hope because not just the lies that poison us, we also can rest in the fact that there is truth that saves us. There's truth that saves us. Look at the rest of the psalm. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us. 
from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. So since the wicked are prowling, since vileness is exalted, again, that's the state of the world because of the brokenness that is sin. The poor are plundered and the needy groan. And so what does God say? What is the promise he makes? What is the bold claim? He says, I will arise. I will act. Big promise, right? What does it say? I will place him in the safety for which he longed. That's a big promise. But it's only good news if it's true. It's only good news if it's true. And David keeps that words theme going, right? He says, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Kind of some language to give a bit of an illustration on how pure his words really are. I don't know why it reminded me of like water bottle commercials. They always talk about how many times it's purified. I'm like, that, that means nothing. I don't have a metric for that, but it's, it's just being emphatic, saying it is pure. You know, Dasani water or whatever. I don't know if they develop Dasani, but. But that's kind of what David's doing here. He's, he's using imagery to say God's words are actually pure, as pure as the purest silver. He says, you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. And so the words of man refresh our memory. Everybody utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips. In a double heart they speak. Okay, a few verses later, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So that's... That's the words of man. Then what are the words of God, according to David here? Well, the words of God are pure. They are right. They are true. The motives of man, what does it say? Well, it says they're prowling. There's wickedness, vileness, lies, flattering words, double talk. Again, maybe you have a more optimistic view of humanity. But maybe you're like, no, this is more true than not. But what does it say the motives of God are? It says, I will place them in safety. I will guard them forever. This echoes the language throughout all of the Bible. This is itself God's word, but as Josiah read for us earlier, Proverbs 30, verses 5, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Again, if this claim that he's making, I will, you know, save him, I will put him in the safety for which he longed, I will arise. If that's true, he is a shield for those who would take refuge in him. And so that is the bold promise that is made from cover to cover of the Bible. That people are a mess. But God promised that he would act to save his people. And he did. But we too often we fall for the lies that say save yourself. That if we're just good enough, maybe we can earn enough credit to be made right with God, friend, that is not good news. It's not good news. Because we can't do it. We can't be good enough. We can't earn enough credit. Again, you may say, Aaron, that's pessimistic, man. But I think it's realistic. But the good news is that God knew this. He knew that we couldn't live up to that standard. He knew that because of our prideful rebellion as Toby read for us earlier, we all are like sheep have gone astray. We've wandered away. We've decided that I don't want a master. I want to be Lord of my own life. And so we find ourselves 
spiritually poor, bankrupt even. We are needy. We are groaning because all that we have placed our hope in, we've gone all in on something that just can't hold that kind of weight. And so what does God do? Again, throughout the whole Old Testament, he was there for his people. He was keeping them. He was making ways for them to be made right with him. And he was making promise after promise that one day he would make a way finally and fully for humanity to be made right with him, to be reconciled with him. And that is what we remember on Good Friday. That God would send his own son into the world to do what we could never do, to live a sinless life. To not fall for the lies that we fall for every single day. And that even in his sinlessness, he would die. He would pay the penalty for sin. The penalty for this utter rebellion. And worse than the physical torture and honestly horrific death that he died was the spiritual weight that he took on his shoulders. And so if I take an honest look, you know, I grew up in the church, Good Friday, it's a normal thing. If we really think about it, it seems twisted to remember and celebrate the most unjust act in all of human history. It is the most, there are some heinous things that have happened in the world. But if this is truly true, that Jesus was sinless, he is the one person who never deserved to take this kind of punishment, yet he took it. That's the most unjust act in all of history. The only truly innocent man paying the penalty for someone else's wrong. Truly innocent. And that's why we're here this morning. That's why we think about Good Friday. And the reason that it's good Friday, the reason that this is good news is that he did it for us. He was not motivated to build a platform to be some influencer of some sort. He was not motivated for his own, you know, success. He brought himself low. He was motivated by his love for us and by the state of our spiritual poverty, our neediness that we see in Psalm 12. He went to the cross for us so that by simply turning from our sin and choosing to no longer try to be the master of our own life, we would turn to him and let him be the master of our fate, the captain of our souls. That's the hope of the gospel. That then when God looks at us, he would see Christ in his righteousness. Because on Good Friday, or on the Friday when Jesus died, what we remember on Good Friday is when God looked at Jesus, he saw us in all of our sin, in all of our brokenness. It's this cosmic and mind-boggling exchange which is the most beautiful truth ever. Isn't that better news than simply getting your act together? Isn't that better news than putting all of your hope, pushing all of your chips in on something that's just so fragile that could be lost in an instant? And that is the choice that each of us face. Where will you ground your hope? There's no middle ground. Every single person in this room will put all their hope in something. You may try to diversify your portfolio, but we're all putting our hope ultimately in something. 
who will believe one of those promises, who will believe that promise of health, wealth, and prosperity that's held out by the world, a promise that sounds just true enough to be believable, or we'll put our hope in words that can hold their weight. Jesus uses a familiar imagery now to us in Matthew chapter 7 for this reality. Matthew 7, verses 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. <clears throat> Have you honestly taken inventory of your life to consider what foundation you are building on? Or is that still just a Sunday school song? What are we grounding our hope in? What words are you believing today? And so this, I assure you, this is not a call for blind faith, just hoping for the best. This is a call to make an honest assessment. Look at these two things that are held out. Do I want option A or option B? Do I want to believe this promise? Big promise. Do I want to believe this promise? Another big promise. But we've got to make an honest assessment. I don't know what that tone is. Prompt. Make an honest assessment. But that's the place for us this morning. On this Friday in April, we have the opportunity to pump the brakes and consider the biggest promise ever made and consider how it would change the way we live if it is in fact true. Friend, the hope of the gospel is that in life it may feel like all the godly have gone, all the faithful have vanished. But it was Jesus who 2,000 years ago was betrayed. He was abandoned by his friends. Where when the rubber hit the road, they vanished. He said, I'll be there for you. I'll even die with you. And the soldiers show up and they're gone. He was abandoned so that ultimately we would never have to be. We may feel the effects of a broken world that's saturated by lies. Again, lies from every side. But it was Jesus who emptied himself, descending to humanity, to the brokenness of our world, taking on the form of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, and not just any death, death on a cross, so that we who were spiritually poor and needy might find life. He was made spiritually poor, and he groaned on that cross so that we would never have to. I think this is true for all of us. We all long for safety and security. It's what David says in verse 5, for which he longs, safety for which he longs. Because of what Jesus has done, that is the offer. That is option A. The offer of ultimate safety, ultimate security, ultimate hope is held out for you today. All the promises of God, as big and bold as they are, are yes 
in Jesus. That is the hope of Psalm 12, and that is the hope for us today. Promises only count when they're kept, and Good Friday is a time for us to remember the greatest promise ever made that was kept. And it was kept for our sake, that God would show his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ would die for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in our brokenness, in our contribution to the fallenness of our world, uh, you didn't leave us, you didn't abandon us, that you did it all for us, that you would send your son to make a way for us to find the safety for which we long. God, would you help us all to give up trying to be the master of our own life, to stop trying to steer our own ship, to stop putting all of our hope in things that can vanish in an instant. God, would you work in ways that only you can in our hearts that that would transform our lives and that that hope that we have wouldn't lead to us thinking that we're better, thinking that we've got it all figured out. God, the hope of the gospel is that we don't have it figured out. But we thank you that that's not the end of the story. And that on Good Friday, we can slow down to remember what you did as big and bold and crazy as it sounds, to make a way for us to be made right with you, to be counted as righteous. We thank you for your grace that we don't deserve, yet you freely give. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.